Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers or things present, or things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we need to go to the Lord in prayer. It is God the Holy Spirit who teaches us. God's Word, who helps us to understand it, who stores it in our soul and brings it to our memory for application. If we are not in right relationship with the Holy Spirit, which is referred to as fellowship with God, then this ongoing, sanctifying, spiritual growth-producing ministry of the Holy Spirit is shut down. We don't lose salvation when we sin, but we do lose fellowship. And when we admit or acknowledge our sins to God, Scripture says that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, it's necessary to be properly prepared spiritually as we go to the uh, Lord's Word that we might be in right relation to the Holy Spirit. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and then I open in prayer. So let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, Scripture teaches that one of the unique aspects of Christianity, of who you are, your revelation, is that you have declared the end from the beginning and that that which is foretold in the Scripture by you always comes to pass exactly as it was revealed. This is unique among all so-called gods, so-called religions, but it is evidence, again, that you are the creator God, the sovereign God of the universe, who has control over the affairs of men and over the uh, direction of history. Father, we are a part of history in each of our individual lives, and so this is not just some abstract truth related to historical destiny, but has to do with our own spiritual lives as they have a role to play within the outworking of human history as we are called to be witnesses to your grace, witnesses to your character, and witnesses to the fact that Jesus Christ has come to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, and that by simply believing, trusting in him alone, we have eternal salvation. Now, Father, as we study... These events in Revelation chapter 10, we pray that we might be challenged in our own spiritual life, that our understanding of who you are, our understanding of your holiness, your majesty, your righteousness might be expanded, and that this might be used by God the Holy Spirit to challenge us in our own spiritual life and to move us further along the path to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. At the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus says, as we were reminded in the hymn we sang, Son of God, Thou Now Art Seated, Jesus says, Behold, I quickly come. One of the purposes for the Revelation, the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, is not just to satisfy human curiosity about the future, but to make believers aware of the fact that there is a future accountability. There is future judgment. There is a 
future destiny. And as we come to understand that future destiny, to, to focus on where God is taking history and where God is taking us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and the imminency of accountability and judgment is such that it is to stimulate us to spiritual growth. It is to challenge us with the fact that we cannot become complacent in our day-to-day lives with all of the day-to-day distractions and somehow become distracted from our ultimate purpose, which is to study, learn the Word of God, that our thinking might be transformed so that we think about life, we think about history, we respond to the details of life, the circumstances of our uh, different lives in such a way that we respond as God would have us respond and that our lives uh, reflect his grace, his love, and that it is uh, through our lives, our spiritual growth, that God's character becomes manifested as we become conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we go through our study in the book of Revelation, as we look at all of these details related to those future judgments, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments, and we think about why is this important that I understand uh, these things that will have no direct impact on my life because we're not going to be here. We'll be raptured as believers. It is to impress us with the majesty of God, with his sovereignty, and with his rule over the affairs of man, and that eventually he will bring his plan to uh, completion. And with that completion, there comes judgment. There comes accountability. For the believer in the church age, that accountability takes the form of the judgment seat of Christ when we are evaluated at the right after the rapture, prior to the beginning of these events in the tribulation period, and that evaluation becomes the basis for our future rewards, our position in the uh, millennial kingdom as kings and priests when we will reign and rule with the Lord Jesus Christ. For unbelievers, it is a challenge to the fact that they too will face accountability, and that will come at the great white throne judgment, which we'll cover in Revelation chapter 20, but that the decisions that they make during this life with respect to the Lord Jesus Christ will have eternal consequences. For the believer, the decisions that you make during this life will have an impact on what happens at the judgment seat of Christ and what happens during the millennial kingdom. So there is an urgency that runs through the prophecies of Revelation that are uh, summarized in that statement by the Lord where he says, Behold, I quickly come. Now, we find ourselves at a point near the midpoint of the tribulation period, near the middle part of the events of the tribulation. By the way, just to let the media crowd know, something really weird is going on when I move. The mouse on my computer moves. And it's related to the signal coming off of the wireless. Just thought you guys would want to know that because you love to investigate mysteries. Well, we have another mystery in this passage, and that is going to be covered when we get down to uh, verse 7. But we have to begin uh, at the beginning of the chapter. Now, we should be reminded of where we are in the book of Revelation. The rapture has taken place. That takes place prior to the events of chapter 4. Chapter 4 and 5 focus on the uh, throne room of God. And the focal point there is who is worthy to open this scroll that is lying in the hand of God the Father upon his throne. It lies there awaiting someone worthy, someone who is able to come forward and to open uh, that scroll. And so there is a search for someone qualified, and that search ends with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain for our sins, that he alone is qualified to open that that scroll. That's the focus of Revelation 4 and 5. As he begins to open the scroll that has, that is sealed with these seven seals, those seven seals represent the first series of judgments in the tribulation period. They are called the seven seal judgments, and when you come to the sixth seal and that is opened, what is revealed is a second series 
of judgments that are contained within that seventh seal. And those are called the seven trumpet judgment. There's an interlude between the seven seals and the seven trumpets. That interlude is covered in chapter 7, which deals with what God is doing in terms of his grace, the sealing of the 144,000 Jewish believers, and then the last half of chapter 7 focuses on the untold number of martyrs that are in heaven by the midpoint of the first half of the tribulation, uh, demonstrating that many will be saved during this time. It is not just a time of harsh judgment, but is a time when the gospel goes forth in a magnificent way and God's grace God's grace is manifested in that uh, hundreds of thousands will be saved. Then from chapter 8 through chapter uh, 9, we have the description of these first six uh, trumpet judgments. And again, we have an interlude beginning in chapter 10 and extending through chapter uh, 14 before we get to the bold judgments that begin with chapter uh, 15. So we're beginning that interlude section in chapter 10 with a shift in focus from the judgments on the earth to something that happens in the heavenly realm related to this particular angel that shows up. And what we'll see here is that with the arrival of this uh, angel, the revelation that goes with this angel, the fact that the angel holds this little book in his hands, that the focal point here is that that final uh, culminative judgment that will bring history to its closure, that will seal an end to human rebellion against God and result in the establishment of God's kingdom upon the earth, the millennial kingdom, and Jesus Christ as the king, that that is now going to come to pass. This is presented as an answer to the prayer of the martyrs in the fifth seal judgment as described in Revelation 6, verses 10 and 11. There these martyrs are depicted as being under the altar in heaven, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them. It was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed." There is still at that time a delay in that judgment. But what we see with the arrival of this vision of John's in chapter 10, the announcement of the mighty angel, is that there will no longer be a delay at the end of verse 6, and that with the seventh trumpet judgment, the mystery of God will be completed. And so that is really the core focus on chapter 10 is the announcement about the uh, completion of this plan. And it is announced in a uh, in a way that even though it's stated in a past tense form in the Greek, it's what we refer to as a future aorist or a proleptic aorist in that the certainty of these events is so definite that it is stated as if it had already uh, transpired. So we'll begin in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. There we read John saying, And I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot upon the land. So what we're going to see here in this chapter, basically two things that come out of this vision of the mighty angel. The first seven verses describe the announcement that the mighty angel announces the completion of God's plan uh, to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Uh, This is the focus of the little book uh, that is mentioned here, the seven peals of thunder that are mentioned in verse Uh, four that John is prohibited from uh, writing about, and the oath that is sworn by the angel to no longer delay God's judgment. That's verses 6 and 7. And then the second part of this chapter, verses 8 through 11, describe a second writing commission 
given to the Apostle John to prophesy the judgments of the little book concerning all the peoples, nations, languages, and rulers. So as he writes down what's included in this little book, it will involve and relate to all the peoples upon the earth at that uh, particular time. Uh, Though the end result, which is the coming of Christ, the establishment of his kingdom is sweet, the realization of the severe judgments which must precede that are viewed as being uh, bitter. This is the significance of the imagery of John taking and eating the scroll that will make his stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in his mouth. So at the beginning of chapter 10, John sees this uh, mighty angel uh, coming. It's translated in some English translations as mighty angel, other translations as a strong angel. It begins with the phrase, and I saw, indicating ongoing action following uh, the vision that concluded at verse 21, which was a vision related to the, uh, in chapters 8 and 9, the trumpet judgments. And so he moves to the next vision. This is like scene shifting in a, in a film or scene shifting on a television show. And now the scene shifts to action that takes place in the spiritual realm in the heavenlies with this particular angel. The phrase another or the word another in the phrase another mighty angel is the Greek word alas, which indicates another of the same kind another of the same kind. It is not another of a different kind, heteros, but another of the same kind. In Revelation uh, chapter 10, we have this emphasis on this mighty angel, and he's not unique. There are other mighty angels in the Scripture. The adjective there, mighty, is the Greek word iskaros, which means strong or powerful or mighty. Some of your English translations will translate it one way in one verse, another way in another verse, so that uh, the English reader somehow misses uh, the, the fact that there are three different strong or mighty angels mentioned in Revelation. The first is mentioned in Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. This is in that throne room scene where the... Uh, father is seen sitting upon his throne with a scroll lying in his open hand. And then John writes in verse 2, Then I saw a strong Iskaros, strong or mighty angel, proclaiming with a loud voice. And it seems like these mighty, mighty angels all have loud voices. He proclaims with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose his seals. That's the first mighty angel. Revelation 10.1 is the second mighty angel that we're studying right now. And then Revelation 18.21, we read of a third mighty angel. Uh, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying. So we have these three mighty angels, and that helps us to understand something more about uh, what the Bible teaches about angels. Not only is there one archangel, Michael, And not only is there an angel, Gabriel, who has a specific role to play in Revelation concerning uh, the nation Israel, not only are there cherubs and seraphs and the living beings uh, that surround the throne in Revelation chapter 4, but there seem to be a class of angels called mighty or strong angels. Now, there are some who have tried to identify this particular a mighty angel, as the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is because of the way he is described in this particular passage. In fact, I think that in an earlier series I did on Christology, uh, I uh, thought that that was a very strong possibility. On further study, it is not a strong possibility. It's clear that this is just another angel. It is another of the same kind as these other mighty angels, but he's surrounded by a rainbow, which is typically associated with the throne of God. He comes clothed with a cloud. Clouds are often associated with the presence of God in the scripture. His face shines like the sun in the same way the Lord Jesus Christ 
face shone like the sun back in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 16, when he appeared to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. The angel here has legs like pillars of fire, and that is reminiscent of the presence of God at the time of the Exodus as his Shekinah presence, his Shekinah glory was manifested during the night by a pillar of fire, during the day by by a cloud and leading the Israelites uh, through the wilderness. The fact that when the angel speaks, his voice is compared to that of a lion roaring also reminds us of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is described as the lion of Judah. And so for those reasons, for those similarities, uh, people have thought this was the Lord Jesus Christ, but similarity does not mean identity. Nowhere in the scripture is the Lord in, in Revelation, nowhere in Revelation is the Lord Jesus Christ referred to as an angel. In fact, in the uh, book of Revelation, uh, angels are always angels. In all of the New Testament, angels are always angels. And the role of this particular angel fits within the role of angels in the prophecy of Revelation. We have studied this in detail before. And just to remind you, what we see in not only in the book of Revelation, but also uh, in the scope of the scriptures from Genesis on, is that one of the roles of angels is to carry out the decrees of God, carry out uh, various mandates of God in relation to mankind. And in many of these roles, they function in a way that's related to his uh, judicial role as the supreme judge of the universe. And this is particularly true in the book of Revelation. They are agents of his judgment, announcing judgment, carrying out judgment, uh, uh, applying these judgments. Uh, in terms of the church, we have the seven angels of the seven churches, and we saw in our study there that these weren't pastors, as many people think the word angel is never used to uh, refer to a pastor, but that their role fits that of the role of angels within the apocalypse, and that is that uh, angels are witnesses, and they are uh, recording the workings of God in history. They are keeping a record of these things, and this would be analogous in our culture to the role of a U.S. marshal uh, or a bailiff in a court and as a record keeper, as one who oversees the decrees of the judge on the bench. And so that's the function here. And so the angel uh, that is uh, described here is going to be announcing uh, another uh, arena of judgments that are contained within uh, this uh, little book. And so the role of the angel in chapter 10 fits the role of the angel elsewhere in Scripture. What we've also seen is that the favorite term that John uses for the Lord Jesus Christ is that of the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 5, he is described as the Lamb who appeared before the throne as though it had been slain, and that the uh, 24 elders and the living creatures there in Revelation 5 sing a praise to the Lamb that he is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because he was slain and redeemed us to God uh, by his blood. And in Revelation 5.10, it goes on to say that you, that is the Lamb, you have made us kings and priests to our God. In Revelation, there are a number of other titles that are given to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have enumerated them for you. There are 11. He's called the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. In Revelation 1.5, he's called the Son of Man, indicating his true humanity. In Revelation 1.3, he's called the first and the last, indicating his eternality. In Revelation 1.17, he is called the Living One, emphasizing his resurrection from the dead. In Revelation 1.18, he is called the Son of God, indicating his full deity. In Revelation 1.18, he is called the One who is holy, the one who is true, again, attributes that apply only to deity in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, he is called the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation 
of God. That doesn't mean that he was the first creature God created, but that he is the preeminent one among God's creation. He stands over it. He is called seventh. He is called the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David in Revelation 5, 5. Eighth, he is called the lamb, Revelation 6, 1. Uh, 16, 7, 17, 8, 1, and numerous other passages, 27 times in Revelation he's referred to as the Lamb. He is called faithful and true in Revelation 19, 11. He is called the Word of God in Revelation 19, 13. And finally, in Revelation 19, 16, he is called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but he is never called an angel in Revelation. So it is important to recognize that this angel here in Revelation 10.1 is just that, an angel. So what then is the significance of the description that he is clothed with a cloud, rainbow is on his head, and his face is like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire? Uh, first of all, we should note that we should look at these three uh, characteristics uh, in a way that, that unifies them. His face shines like the sun. He's clothed with a cloud, and he has a rainbow around his head. Now, when the sun is shining through the clouds, we see a rainbow. But you never thought of putting those together like that. So we see the brilliance of his, of his face, of his features, are such that as they shine forth, uh, through the cloud that surrounds him, it also produces a manifestation of a rainbow. Now, each of these attributes, the cloud, the rainbow, and his face shining like the sun, are described of God, described of the Lord Jesus Christ in various passages in Scripture. For example, clouds are frequently associated with visions of God, which are called theophanies from two Greek words, theos and phaneo, meaning manifestation or appearance of God. And they're frequently associated with the activities of angels. The uh, Lucifer in his desires, five I will, says that he will raise himself above the clouds of heaven. And this indicates the angels. Clouds are sometimes uh, used in scripture to depict uh, the mechanism on which uh, either the Lord Jesus Christ or angels ascend or descend, and often these are in prophetic uh, passages and prophetic contexts. So this cloud imagery doesn't mean he is divine, but it is reinforcing the fact that he represents God. He is coming from the Supreme Court of Heaven. Of the uh, of the 29 uses of the Greek word for cloud in the New Testament, nine of them are associated with scenes of judgment, scenes of judgment, the presence of God coming uh, to judge. For example, in Revelation 1-7, we read, Behold, he is coming with clouds. This refers to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. This is in reference to the second coming as he comes to destroy the armies of the Antichrist and to judge uh, Satan as well and cast him into uh, the abyss for, uh, where he will be imprisoned for a thousand, for a thousand years. In Revelation uh, 11 verse 12, we see uh, another reference to clouds. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud. This is when the two uh, witnesses will ascend to heaven uh, in a cloud. Uh, Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 16, also uh, uses clouds, and in this context related to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of Man, being depicted upon a cloud from which he uh, will put his sickle into the uh, field of human history in order to bring about judgment. second description of this angel states that he has a rainbow around his head. Now, it's interesting the word rainbow is only used two times in the New Testament, both of which are in 
uh, Revelation. One has to do with the description of the emerald rainbow around the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4. And the second is in this verse surrounding the head of the mighty angel. Uh, The rainbow itself is produced by a refraction of light, usually through moisture. The prismatic effect then produces the rainbow. The first time we see rainbow mentioned in Scripture is in relation to the covenant God made with Noah after the flood. And it is there that God said that he set his bow. Uh, It's interesting how the rainbow is identified as his rainbow. And this is often, as I've stated earlier, often associated with the presence of God. So he states, sets his bow in the clouds, and it is a reminder that God will be merciful and not judge the earth by destroying it with water again. He'll destroy it by fire, but not by water. So when we read of the rainbow, it is a reminder uh, of his mercy, Genesis 9 Uh, 13 through 16, especially verse 16, the rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. The next characteristic that we see speaks of this angel as having a face like the sun. This is also a characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory in Matthew 17, Two, at the time of what's called the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus took Peter and James and John up on uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, and there his glory was revealed, and Moses and Elijah appeared. Moses and Elijah also had faces that shone because of the glory of heaven. That also reminds us of what transpired in the Old Testament whenever Moses would go into the tent of meeting with God. And there he would be in the presence of God as God revealed things to him and communicated with him. And then when Moses came out of the uh, holy place, what would happen? His face still reflected the glory of God. And that is what I believe is happening here in Revelation 10.1, is this angel has come from the presence of God. And just as Moses' face reflected the glory of God when he came out from God's presence at the tabernacle. So, too, this angel's face shines like the sun because he is reflecting the glory of God uh, from whose presence he he has come. And then last we see that his feet are stated to be like pillars of fire. Pillars of fire, again, this reminds us uh, somewhat of the columns of fire, the pillar of fire that led the uh, Israelites through the wilderness. This was a, a sign of the presence of God, what we refer to as the uh, Shekinah glory. It's also a description of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 1, uh, 15. His feet were like fine brass. It's that sh- brilliant, shining uh, color indicating purification. And so, again, we have this uh, symbolism that speaks of the what is taking place in these judgments, a purification of the earth from evil and sin in, within, in, within history for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. So their conclusion is that this isn't the Lord Jesus Christ, but this is an angel who has been sent from the throne room of God in order to announce another aspect of God's judgment upon the earth, and these judgments are contained within that which is referred to in the next verse as a little book. Verse 2 reads, He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, we know that he is holding this little book in his left hand, and not his right hand, uh, because when he will swear his oath in verse 5, he will raise his hand. This would be, in swearing of an oath, this would be his right hand to heaven. So therefore, he is holding the uh, open little book in his hand. The fact that it is open also tells us something, that it contains that which is to be revealed. It is not like the scroll that was closed 
until the Lord began to open the seals, but it is already uh, open, indicating that that which it uh, contains is to be uh, to be revealed. It also is contrasted with what we'll see in verses four, uh, or in verse four, and that is these seven thunder judgments that are uh, not to be revealed. John is not to uh, write about in those verses. Now, the other thing that we see here is that he has this little book that's open in his hand, and uh, this little book speaks of judgment. I believe that this is what's contained in the next few chapters, chapters 10, 11, 12, uh, 13, and 14. Some uh, uh, commentators have said that this is a sort of the backbone, as it were, of the open scroll, the large scroll. It is a... Uh, subset of what's in the large scroll that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, opens. And we read then at the end of verse 2 that he sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So his posture is emphasized. So we should uh, ask a question about what this signifies. What this signifies is that the judgment that he is announcing is related to God taking possession of the earth in order to establish his kingdom. We have the same kind of imagery indicated in Deuteronomy chapter 11. If you remember, Moses wrote Deuteronomy as his final message, his final words to the Israelites just prior to his death and their entry into the land that God had promised them. And so it contains a warnings, it contains uh, challenges to Israel related to their being in the land. And in Deuteronomy 11, Moses is talking about their conquest of the land. And he says, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. From the wilderness in Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the uh, western sea shall be your territory. By the way, that also includes Gaza which is where the fighting is taking place now. And isn't it interesting how uh, the kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth, are all uh, gathering together to uh, call upon Israel to have peace, peace at any cost. Uh, They all say peace, peace when there is no peace. What a uh, classic uh, allusion to prophecy in Scripture. I'm not saying that's a fulfillment of prophecy, but simply that we see this same trend continuing to manifest itself uh, throughout history and that we see that wonderful uh, religious organization up on the banks of the Hudson River called the United Nations uh, that is articulating once again or wants to articulate once again a a, uh, resolution where they'll probably condemn Israel and won't say anything negative about Hamas because if you saw the news this morning, all the uh, Arab ambassadors and leaders are all headed to the UN in order to protest this terrible injustice of these attack of the Zionist entity uh, upon these innocent Palestinians who haven't done anything wrong. It's just all these Jews that are doing all these evil things as they ignore the fact that uh, day after day after day, even during the time of truce, the uh, you know, Hamas was still launching uh, missiles into Israel. At the lowest point under the truce, they were still launching three or four missiles a day at Israel. That truce was a farce. And anything less than wiping out the Palestinians in Gaza and recolonizing it will not produce peace. Uh, I I predict, I'm not a prophet, so I don't say I'm right, but I predict that once again Israel will be brought up short, they will not complete the mission, and what we'll see again and again is that the Arabs will ignore whatever they put on paper because uh, according to Islam they don't have to honor any uh, covenants or any contracts or any treaties with an infidel. And the kings of the West, the kings of the world, refuse to face reality and accept the fact that these Arabs are always going to lie to them and will always lie to them because their agenda 
is to destroy Israel and to wipe them out, and there is no point of compromise. And I was pleased to see that Israel is continuing to assert the fact that they will not have a 48-hour peace uh, in, in order humanitarian, in order for there to be humanitarian aid, because they recognize that these uh, Hamas terrorists will just use that to reorganize and to strengthen themselves, and probably to move some of their weapons out of where they have been hidden, in order to either uh, get them out of Gaza or to use them against the uh, invading uh, Israeli army. So don't don't be deceived. I was even pleased to see. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, the mayor of New York, uh, interviewed this morning on Fox News, and he was saying exactly what I just said, that, that the, there is no reason for the Israelis to back off or to relax at all because there is, uh, no, there's been nothing on the part of Hamas uh, to indicate that they would, that they would uh, honor any agreement. And until there is an agreement that they will honor, then the uh, Israeli army needs to completely uh, wipe out all of this, their armaments and all of the terrorists in, uh, in the Gaza Strip. And they, in my opinion, they need to reclaim it, reestablish their colonies, and send the Palestinians to Egypt or Jordan or Syria or wherever else they can, they can go. But I know that won't happen because that's not the trend of history in this age as we le- head toward uh, toward the end times. But all of that land was originally promised by God to the descendants of Abraham, but they will not enjoy that land until they are living in the land in obedience, in obedience to God. So the angel's posture here is the fact that he has one foot upon uh, the sea and one upon the land is a posture of claiming the earth for God, and a posture of taking possession of the whole earth in view of establishing uh, God's kingdom upon the earth. Now, that's important to understand the term that we'll come to uh, in verse 7, which is the mystery of God. And so in verse 3 we read that his voice is like the roar of a lion. Before we get there, one other verse that comes up in this section is Revelation 11:15. that when the seventh angel sounds, and all of this is prelude to the seventh angel, the seventh trumpet, uh, there will be voices in heaven that say, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is where this is headed, is this, this whole the mystery of God, is the details, previously unrevealed details, about how God is going to uh, cleanse the earth, purify the earth, and establish his kingdom uh, upon the earth. So in Revelation chapter 10, verse 3, we read that they uh, cry out, the angel cries out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now this term for roaring is not the normal word for a lion's roar. It's the Greek word mukaomai, which is an onomatopoeic word. You learned that back in the, when you were a sophomore in high school, I hope. And you've probably forgotten it. It means it's a word that sounds like what it's talking about. And so it comes from the Greek, uh, Greek word or Latin word mu, which is very similar to the English word mu, which expresses the sound that a cow or an ox makes. And so it is uh, an, this word that sounds like what it's talking about, the loud bellow of an ox or a cow, and it is used in some places even to speak of the roar of, of a lion. And it indicates the depth, the volume, the intensity of the sound. And this sound is not just a sound. There is an articulated content to that which the apostle is prohibited from writing down. So as this, he hears this thunderous uh, roar, this roll of thunder, it sounds like thunder to others, but John hears the content, and he is prohibited from writing it down. It reminds us somewhat of event in the life of Christ in John chapter 12, where he is talking to the Father, and he says, My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. This is right before he goes to the cross. But for this purpose, I came to this hour, he says. 
And then in John 12:28, as he concludes that prayer, he says, Father, glorify your name. And then we're told a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. But see, there were witnesses. There were people, not just the disciples standing around. And verse 29 says, therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Now, they didn't hear the content of the thunder. They didn't hear the specific words, but those words were there. And that is what uh, is recorded in John 12, 28. So some said it thundered, others said an angel had spoken. They didn't understand the content of the thunder, but the thunder still had content. This fits also with the pattern of the announcements of the Lord's judgments. For example, in Joel 3.16, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold for the sons of Israel. Then we come to the point in verse 5 of the oath where the angel who he saw standing on the land, on the sea and on the land raises his hand to heaven. He's going to swear an oath. Now some have said this shows clearly that this isn't the Lord Jesus Christ because he swears by him who lives forever and ever. But God swore by himself to Abraham in Genesis chapter uh, 15 because there is no one higher by whom he can swear. So this is not an argument to show it's not Jesus Christ, but it nevertheless it's still an angel. And he swears this oath, and notice the content of the oath, by him who lives forever, emphasizing the eternity of God, his eternity, and the emphasis on creation coming out of Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. The verbiage is almost identical. He is the God who created the heaven, created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it emphasizing that God is the creator, and because he is the creator of everything, he has the right to do with everything, whatever he wishes to do with everything. And he can make it be whatever he wants it to be, and he can judge it and destroy it if he wishes, and he can recreate a new heavens and new earth if he wishes. But notice the uh, emphasis the, uh, on creation, the creation and the God as the creator is a foundational doctrine. Genesis 1 is not just some story. It's not just a myth. It's not just some uh, literary formation, but it is true, genuine history. And this is coming under attack more and more and more uh, within evangelical circles. Frankly, evangelical scholars have never been truly in love with a strict, literal six-day creation, and you have numerous uh, Old Testament scholars in most of our solid seminaries who no longer believe that Genesis 1 is literal six-day creation. We now have to say it's a literal 24-hour consecutive day creation because they view it as a literary framework in order to try to assimilate to the uh, the thinking of modern science that the earth is millions or billions of years in age. Creation is foundational. You take away the creation story of Genesis 1 through 3 as not being literal, and it undercuts, it undercuts the rest of Scripture. If Genesis 1 through 3 is not literal, then the rest of Scripture is fantasy. There is no alternative. So, the angel swears by him who created the heavens and the things that are in it, and the earth and the things that are in it. And he says that, that the focus is that there will be no delay no longer, that it is finally time, in the words of that famous sermon by R.G. Lee, for there to be payday. His sermon was titled, Payday Someday. And payday is coming. There will no longer be a delay. The time has come, the angel says, And in verse 7 he says, but in the days of the sounding, and that means that during the period of that seventh trumpet, which unfolds the seven bowl judgments, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. Now that term mystery of God is used to refer to God's plan of redemption. It's used to refer to the church and the church age. It's used to refer to several different things contained within Scripture, but here the context indicates that this mystery, which means previously unrevealed information, focuses on the details of how God is going to bring about the establishment of his kingdom 
upon the earth. And this is the focus of the last half of the tribulation as God, God's wrath is poured out on the earth, his judgment is poured out on the earth in order to prepare for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. This is in fulfillment of that which was revealed to the prophets in the Old Testament. As the verse concludes in verse 7, as he declared to his servants the prophets. And so this is the focal point, that the delay has ceased and that God's judgment is going to be completed. Well, we'll come back next time, which will be in three weeks when I return from Kiev, and we will begin with the next verse as we focus on uh, the commission to John and then going on into the next chapter with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're indeed grateful, thankful that we have your word that tells us all things, gives us a framework for thinking, helps us to understand who we are as creatures in your image, but yet fallen, and that you have done everything necessary to solve the problem, the sin problem, by sending your son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, as the lamb without spot or blemish, who would give himself as a substitute for our sins, that by virtue of his eternal redemption accomplished on the cross, we might have eternal life, that the decree against us has been canceled and that the door to salvation is open and the issue is our volition. We must simply believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins, that uh, he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the one who has uh, paid the penalty for our sins, and that by believing in him alone, just that trusting in him alone, we have eternal life. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who's never made that decision, never clearly understood that Jesus Christ died for them, that at this moment they would believe that Jesus died. If you're sitting here today and you've never done that, then this is your opportunity to trust in Christ as your Savior. Scripture says that he died for everyone. That includes you, and there's no sin too great for the grace of God and no sin that God forgot to uh, pour out or impute to Jesus Christ on the cross. So every sin you've committed has been paid for. The issue now is what are you going to do about it? Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have eternal life. Those who do not are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, Father, we pray that you challenge each of us with the fact that we have a destiny with you and that, that as we study these things, it's not simply to stimulate our curiosity, but to challenge us to grow spiritually and to be prepared for your return, that we might uh, serve and rule and reign with you in your kingdom. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.